Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou ao horihori ki te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. You're with Our Changing World on RNZ National and now Surviving Life on the Outside. Prison isn't just about locking people up and throwing away the key, especially when sentences are finite and offenders must be released back into the community. The primary components that assist a person with their reintegration back are rehabilitation and learning new sets of skills and coping mechanisms. But there are plenty of obstacles that stand in the way for offenders in the first 12 months of release. Sonia Sly has more. It's easy to take what we have for granted. We're on autopilot the minute we wake up, shower, brush teeth, breakfast, coffee, off to work. A routine and structure that we don't even think about. And the minute we leave home, we're confronted with stimuli from all directions. There's traffic, people, conversations, unspoken and unwritten social codes and rules that we recognise and abide by. But what's life like for those who aren't used to routine, where immersion in society is chaotic and those signals and social codes aren't necessarily visible? For men who've been in prison for 5, 10, 15 or even 20 years, life on the outside can be foreign and alienating. I'm Sonia Sly, and I'm looking at the mechanisms for survival for high-risk offenders in the first 12 months of release. For a high-risk offender, we would be going into the prison and starting to build a relationship with the offender prior to their release. We'd be looking at their release proposal and what elements of their proposal need to be strengthened and the agencies that we can get involved um, in order to be able to do that. Hannah has a degree in psychology and has been working as a probation officer for almost five years. She says her job is to assist offenders with guidance and to provide them with the tools that they need in order to be offence-free. Having the community support and having community-based agencies, particularly around housing and employment, things like that are really important for how well a high-risk offender is going to do when they're transitioning out of the custodial environment. Some offenders have been in there for a very long period of time and some of their support networks may have fallen away. So the more work that we can do before they're actually released from custody, the better, um, and the more prepared we can get them, um, the more likely there's going to see that they're successful. But at the end of the day, it comes down to their intrinsic motivation, so what factors they have within themselves. Ultimately, what we would like is no reoffending at all. The reality is offenders are human as well. The reality is that some of those people do reoffend. Some of these high-risk offenders, they just aren't in a place where they are motivated to remain offence-free. But if we can start them thinking about the impacts that their offending has on the community and we take them down from being, for instance, an injured with intent to injure to a shoplifting, that's a win for us. I mean, I was aware when I was a psychiatric nurse that there were a lot of people that I looked after who were mentally ill also had a long history of offending and if they weren't in a psychiatric unit or hospital, they're often in prison. 
James has also been working in the field. He believes that prisoners who have participated in rehabilitation programmes prior to release are in good stead for successful reintegration, although high-profile offenders can encounter other challenges. Well, we all have high-profile offenders that we have to deal with. These are people that have a, have a high profile in the media and often you're working with people that because of the nature of the offending, they also have name suppression. So you have to be mindful of that and you have to be mindful that um, if you're not doing your job properly, then it can lead to repercussions in the media. For a lot of us, self-control is a difference between whether we indulge in a decadent dessert or maybe hold off and go for a run instead, while for others there are various factors that feed into the decision-making process. For high-risk offenders re-entering the community, the smallest triggers can send someone back on a path to old habits. I think a lot of people will have perceptions of what someone is like when they return to the community after a long period in prison but I don't think they often realise how a long period in custody affects the, the offender as well. I mean, I've, I've looked after a guy that had a full facial tattoo and one of the things that he had difficulty getting used to was people staring at him. But he found, on the other, conversely, that their reaction to him was, was difficult to take. Other issues people have that have been in prison for a long time is that they're not used to all the space, they're not used to all the noise, they're not used to having to make their own decisions, they're, they're used to having things done for them. That can trigger people to return to their own, their old ways of, of coping, associating with other criminal associates, getting back into alcohol and drug use, returning to crime. I have a classic example of a guy who'd been in prison in Rumataka for eight years. Just things like um, cell phones had changed so much and he had a new smartphone and he was on the phone while I, he was in a reporting with me and he kept moving the phone from his ear to his mouth because he wasn't aware that he could just hold it in one place and use it. You know, people not being aware of how they go about getting benefits and how they go about getting accommodation. If someone comes out of prison and they've got a place to live They've already got a benefit arranged or they've got employment arranged and they've got some support people, and especially if that support person comes into the office with them. You can predict that that person's more likely to successfully rehabilitate than someone who doesn't have all those things. People in the criminal justice system are... Uh, they're more interesting and their backgrounds are more diverse than you'd expect. But what's also true is that they're much more likeable and they're, the people they are today is much more complex than you'd expect. So it's, it's not a simple matter of kind of thinking everyone's going to be a complete and utter bastard. Dr Devon Palashik is a Professor of Criminal Justice Psychology at Victoria University. She's been working in the field for more than 22 years and says her goal is towards implementing programmes around changing offending behaviour and limiting the risk for reconviction. Well, they're people who've often done horrendous things and sometimes many, many times, and, and yet at the same time they're people who, you know, 
love their kids or care about pets or, you know, really enjoy some hobby that you might enjoy as well or, you know, cry about some of the same things you might cry about. And so you have to actually keep that whole complexity together. It's not simply that they're good people because some of them are not very good. Devon's research has been integral to what's known as the STIRP programme. Launched almost two decades ago, it had an initial intake of around 30 men per year and now takes around 100 men a year. It's considered to be one of Correction's flagship programmes, which operates in four prisons around the country, with close to 1,400 men having been through the treatment programme. Of the people who start the programmes, about two-thirds of them finish. So about a third fall by the wayside for various reasons. The two main reasons would be that they decide it's not for them and they have the option to leave and go elsewhere in the prison. Um, or their behaviour is such that it's not able to be managed um, while they're taking part in the programme. So we don't expect that people will behave perfectly. They wouldn't be there if they could do that. But obviously if they do some kinds of um, particularly criminal behaviour uh, or you know, drug, heavy drug use while in the programme and so on, then, then sometimes they have to be removed early and may have to come back and do it again in some cases. The programme is available to high-risk offenders and is offered at least two years prior to release. On average, the men tend to be in their 30s and the aim is to address triggers, develop an awareness of action and consequence, but also to provide necessary mechanisms for survival and instilling community values. Part of what the Department of Corrections has been developing over quite a long time is better reintegration of prisoners into the community and also they've done a lot of work on the models they have for how probation officers work with offenders once they're in the community. They're producing treatment effects that are significant on a world scale. They're big, they're robust and they've tended to grow over time. So these are really excellent examples of what you can achieve in rehabilitating prisoners. Each of the units runs as a kind of supportive community. So there's a, a real effort to create in the unit the kind of as much like the real community as you can do, given that you're in a, a low-medium security prison environment. So if we take a look at some of these pictures, for example, you can see that um, there are some striking examples of Māori carvings and of other artwork. Prisoners are involved in a variety of other activities, like employment and so on, that they have these regular community meetings at which they try to build the sense of um, community among them because with um, high-risk violent prisoners who've often been on quite long sentences, one of the ways they survive their sentences is to develop a kind of tunnel vision so that they really just concentrate on themselves. They can get into quite a lot of trouble if they pay attention to other prisoners who might themselves be getting into trouble. But for some, reliance on a criminal lifestyle affects progress. These men in the treatment programme may exhibit poor motivation and poor learning which can inhibit successful treatment and completion of the programme. Violence is actually a social behaviour. So a lot of what um, violence is about is really mismanaged or um, misoriented responses, if you like, to other people or actions towards other people, kinds of communication, kinds of problem solving, all of them criminal. So actually what you want people to do is replace those things with much more um, pro-social and ultimately more effective ways of dealing with other people. So you do actually want to develop their sense of community in prison because they're going out into the community and they can't, although some prisons do decide, you know, try to do this, they can't live in their basement for the rest of their lives, not going out in the world. Quite often people think an important part of rehabilitation is getting people to contribute something good back into the community as well. There's no benefit in making prison, prison harder than it already is. Like the evidence for the effectiveness of prison, if you don't put rehabilitative components into it, is zero. And I would suggest that most of us would expect a bit more for $100,000 a year than nothing.
Would you say, though, as well, that the, the prisoners that are in these programmes, they're all kind of operating at a similar level, therefore they don't want to jeopardise any chance for parole or, or rehabilitation and learning? The men in these units are highly variable. So some of them are extremely committed to making change and will orient themselves towards all the opportunities there are for improving themselves and will avoid the most antisocial prisoners. But others are much harder to engage with. Certainly some of the men are not particularly engaged in change. But interestingly, in our research, we found that most men said that they were trying to quit crime prior to the current prison sentence. And that's why we think of it as a journey. What do you think stopped them? Lots of things. I mean, this other research, and ours confirms it as well, that they are interested and committed to giving up, but if, if, it's, if it's too hard, if there are too many obstacles in their way, then they'll return to plan B, if you like, which is just to go back to the old lifestyle. And clearly as well, like if reintegration isn't successful, the easiest option is to go back to what you know, and that's prison. So it's a never-ending cycle, isn't it? Uh, well, it can be. But as I say, I think um, because these programs are typically working with men in their early 30s, they are men who are trying to break out of the cycle. A lot of them have children, for example, and, and are really enthusiastic about the possibility of developing their family lives. Would you expect that... If someone's been in the prison system for a long time, that it's actually going to reinforce behaviours that they already have towards violence or antisocial behaviour because it's a matter of survival. That can certainly happen, and so some men who are relatively low risk can go into prison and come out having actually learned a whole bunch of stuff for survival that's not at all useful. But what we also know is that the longer people are in prison, the more that they lose their community connections, what's called social capital, the resources that we all need out there to survive. And so over time, although they may in other ways stay relatively unchanged despite the environment, they tend to be a lot shorter on the kinds of supports that they need to survive once they get out. Because your whole family system breaks away and yes, there's stigma yes, attached. and your employers move on and just everything becomes less accessible to you. Your life doesn't move on, but everyone else's does, you know. And the reality for a lot of people, I imagine, is that they come out and there's no one. It depends. These programmes make a real effort to build and re-establish relationships. So sometimes there are family members who have given up on the person, but because they are coming through the programme and are starting to talk a bit differently to how they have for years, sometimes those relationships can be re-established. At the same time, other people make a fresh start, sometimes with a partner, uh, sometimes with one of the various uh, agencies that does offer to help people get restarted again in a new community where there are fewer risk factors for them. Everyone needs people around them to help. But real success relies on an individual's ability to develop a strong tunnel vision and self-focus that's free from distractions. But for many men in the programme, there are complex layers of issues that need to be addressed. In some instances, there may be long histories of family violence and abuse, and unlearning ingrained behaviour patterns can present a real challenge. To get behaviour to change, you really have to tackle the things that, that cause people to be criminal, things that people commonly think of, like alcohol and drug abuse. So people will often point to alcohol and drug use, but there are some other things that are more important than that. Things like um, antisocial um, attitudes and beliefs, so thinking, for example, that violence is a normal way to behave, or thinking that it's okay to just break the rules because you're sort of a different kind of person to other people and you don't need to pay attention to the law. And uh, criminal peers, so having friends and family who are involved in crime. So those are things that can change, they're difficult to change, but can be changed. Most of the men coming into these programs have 15 or 16 areas that have been identified as underpinning their violence risk. And sure, they don't need to change all of those, but that does give them quite a big 
range of things to think about, much more than most of us would be able to manage in eight months or a year of personal development. If you like. I mean, and that's really complex as well because a lot of those things are ingrained or learnt behaviours from childhood or family. And how, yeah, how do you change those things when it's what has become your normal, you know? They're very ingrained, and, and quite often people aren't very familiar with, with other alternatives, because one of the things about growing up doing things a particular way is not only do you learn that way and you get better at that way, you don't learn other ways. So in a way, the options you have for how you behave get narrower and narrower over time. Um, so one of the things is trying to get people to try new things and do them, and of course those habits are ingrained. So under stress or, you know pressure or when you're angry or upset, it's much easier just to revert to old behaviour. We see it in the units and it's, we see it in the community. We see men who are making a genuine hard effort to do things better, doing it better some of the time, but still doing some of the old things. And of course the risk there is that they'll do one of those old things badly enough to go back to prison before they've really got established in the community. But what's the reality of someone who has been in prison for a very long time for them to find gainful employment? Um, highly variable and rather difficult. Uh, people sometimes do very well if they've had a history of good employment because an employer will take them back. And increasingly, I think again due to considerable efforts from the Department of Corrections, a number of employers have actually stepped up and taken, um, been prepared to take prisoners. It's a difficult work market and a lot of people coming out of prison don't necessarily have a lot of skills and they've also got this you know, baggage of a criminal history. So you know, employment can be difficult and, and unstable really. Research shows that within the first 12 months, half of high-risk offenders don't survive the first 100 days without committing a serious offence. So how can positive change be monitored or measured? A natural instinct, after all, can be to resist change. We also found that those men who are already showing more engagement and change um, do better when they get out. By that I mean that we can already see in their behaviour around the prison unit that they are doing more of the new things that they've been working towards doing differently and fewer of the old things. And they can't fake that? Well, you can fake anything, but these are not people who typically um, hang in for the long haul with things. I would always suggest that the effort required to fake that over you know, 8 to 12 months in a residential environment where there are prison officers around all the time is, is quite substantial because there is research on this that if you can fake it for that amount of time then what also tends to happen is it becomes how you behave. So that whole fake it till you make it thing is a real thing. You know, if you, if you make an effort to behave the way you want to be then over time that becomes easier and it becomes more part of you. Thanks to Sonia Sly for that story on surviving life on the outside. She was talking with Devon Palaszczuk from the Department of Psychology at Victoria University, as well as parole officers from the Department of Corrections. That's all for now. For more, check us out on the web, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Matewa. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.